Hey, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about how researchers built a soft robot that reached the deepest part of the ocean, why musicians with brain tumors serenade their surgeons, and the best way to phrase words of comfort. Let's satisfy some curiosity. A soft-bodied robot recently went for an impressive swim in the deepest place on Earth, the Mariana Trench. This is the latest in a long series of engineering achievements that take inspiration from living things. The researchers behind this snazzy new invention were inspired by the Haddle snailfish, which is a small translucent fish that thrives beneath the immense pressures of the Mariana Trench. Now, like its inspiration, the robot is soft and colorless, with two wing-like fins that create thrust by flapping up and down, plus a long tail fin that steers by moving left and right. But the fins aren't powered by the kind of motors that drive most robots. Instead, they're driven by a material that contracts when electrical energy flows through it. And if that sounds familiar, it's because muscles work basically the same way. Yeah, you heard that right. This artificial fish swims using artificial muscles. It's a very cool invention, but why go to all this trouble when we have perfectly good robots already? Well, it's because regular old robots aren't very well suited to the deep. Normal underwater robots require a watertight casing made of metal that's strong enough not to buckle under the pressure. For machines going really deep, that means building thick, heavy, clunky enclosures. This new robot gets around that problem by embedding the electrical components in flexible silicone. The engineers took some cues from how the Haddle snailfish's head protects its insides from the crushing pressure of thousands of feet of water. Instead of bundling the electronics together like normal, they spaced everything out and filled in the gaps with more silicone. Tests in the lab showed what nature already knew. Spacing out the electrical organs reduced strain on the components when the robot was exposed to high pressure. This design could be the beginning of a new generation of devices that explore Earth's oceans. But there are some more hurdles to clear before that happens. For one, the robot has to be faster. In one test, it managed to swim at about half its body length per second. That's quite a bit slower than other underwater bots. It's also very vulnerable to being thrown off course by underwater currents. So there's still some work to do. But this kind of technology is especially exciting because the oceans are still so underexplored. We know more about the moon than we do about huge swaths of the seafloor. Hopefully, technology like this will help us discover what else is down there. Brain surgery is tricky business. Brains aren't exactly labeled to let surgeons know which parts do what. And a single brain tumor could bump up against many different regions responsible for many different things. So, in order to make sure they're pinpointing the right spot and not doing irreparable damage to the wrong one, brain surgeons keep their patients awake during surgery. Sometimes patients answer questions. And sometimes, in the case of musicians, they play their instruments. Take the story of violinist Roger Frisch. He began to notice a trembling in the arm he used to bow his instrument. He got it checked out and was diagnosed with essential tremor. 
That's a common neurological condition. And for a lot of people, it's just a bothersome inconvenience. But for a violinist who requires ultra-fine motor control to communicate with his instrument, it can be career-ending. In 2014, doctors decided to treat the condition with deep brain stimulation surgery, which involves implanting electrodes in the parts of the brain causing the tremors. For 90 minutes beforehand and during the procedure itself, Frisch periodically bowed long notes on the violin to test the severity of the tremor. You know, while he was bolted to a table with a metal halo attached to his open skull. The good news? Once the surgeon had implanted the second electrode, the tremor was gone completely. In 2015, a 25-year-old saxophonist named Dan Fabio was working on a master's degree in music education when he was diagnosed with a benign mass in his brain, and it was located in a region associated with music function. To make sure they kept Fabio's musical ability intact, the team first scanned Fabio's brain in an fMRI machine as he hummed and listened to music. This helped the surgeons create a 3D map of his brain that pinpointed the areas important to his musical abilities. For the surgery itself, he modified a Korean folk song so he could play it on saxophone with one hand and without breathing so deeply that he disturbed the surgery. When surgeons cut into his brain and began to remove the tumor, he performed the same humming and language task that he had in the fMRI. Finally, with the tumor removed, the team brought his saxophone to see if he could play. He could. He played flawlessly. And when he finished, the entire operating room erupted in applause. It just goes to show that sometimes you have to go to great lengths to keep your passions intact. And your brain. That too. (laughs) What are you supposed to say to a loved one who's having a hard time? It can be tough to know, right? Well, luckily, science is here to help. In a recent study, Penn State researchers found the most comforting way to respond to someone who's hurting. For the study, researchers gathered 478 married people and asked them to think about an argument they had recently had with their spouse and someone they could talk to about it, maybe a friend or a sibling or a parent. Then they read one of six possible supportive messages and imagined it coming from that person. The messages varied in their levels of person-centeredness. That reflects the amount that a message acknowledges, contextualizes, and explores the distressed person's feelings. Some of the messages were high in person-centeredness, some were moderate, and others were low in person-centeredness. So like as an example, a highly person-centered message sounds like this. Disagreeing with someone you care about is always hard. It makes sense that you'd be upset. And that lets the person know their feelings are valid and their experience is common. Okay, so compare that to a not very person-centered message, which might sound like this. Nobody is worth getting so worked up about. Stop being so depressed. This message invalidates the person's feelings and tells them how they should feel instead. If you were having a hard time, Which do you think would make you feel better? According to the researchers, probably the first one. In the study, high person-centered messages helped people feel better faster. They also made people more likely to accept social support. On the other hand, the stop being so depressed message didn't help reduce emotional stress. 
Instead, the low person-centered messages made the participants feel angry and less likely to accept help. In other words, they did the exact opposite of what they were supposed to do. The major takeaway here is that validating the other person's feelings is really important. So, if you're struggling to figure out what to say to a friend who's having a rough time, the researchers say to focus on expressing sympathy, care, and concern. If you're really struggling to find the right words, just practice this phrase. I'm sorry you're going through this. I'm worried about you and how you must be feeling right now. That kind of message can actually ease their distress and make them open to accepting help. And when going through a rough time, we could all use a little bit more of that. All right, well, let's recap what we learned today, starting with the fact that researchers built a soft robot that explored the depths of the Mariana Trench, which is the deepest place on Earth. They did it by embedding the electrical parts inside flexible silicone to protect them from the incredibly high pressures down there. We need to make robots like this a little bit faster to make them more effective, but still, this is a pretty huge step in our efforts to explore the ocean, which we haven't really done a lot of yet. Right. We also learned that brains are so complicated, doctors will keep patients awake during brain surgery to make sure they're hitting the right spot and not, you know, doing irreparable damage. No pressure. Sometimes patients answer questions, and other times, if they're musicians, they literally play their instruments, which I'm sure the surgeons don't mind. <laughs> Good one. I mean, I think this is just the most terrifying idea in the world. And I'm sure if you have a brain tumor, you spend a lot of time coming to terms with the fact that you're going to be like awake with someone operating on your brain. But oh, just gives you the heebie-jeebies to think about. Gives you something to do, though, right? <laughs> I mean... Or if I was just knocked out completely, I wouldn't have to do anything. I wouldn't be bored. I'd just wake up when I was done. Okay, yes, yes. That's like the only good thing about surgery is that you don't have to be there for it. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> In a perfect world. But it's not like you have to lay awake and like make eye contact with the surgeon the whole time or something like that. Oh, man. Can you imagine? Like we're operating on the eye contact part of your brain. So here's an intern. We just need you to make eye contact with the entire time. I can kind of imagine because 13 or 14 years ago, I got LASIK and the doctor is like, hey, your eye is wide open. Look at this exact point while I cut your eye with a laser. I mean, that's not really what they're doing, but essentially that's kind of what they're doing. And uh, that's the most terrified I've probably ever been. Because I'm, like, I'm looking at this light and I'm like, don't look away, don't look away, don't look away. And that's all you can think about because, you know, if you look away, that could be really bad. Yeah. And uh, apologies to all the squeamish listeners we have because I'm squeamish myself and I'm getting a little uncomfortable right now. So, Oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. No, no, no. It's both of us. It's We, we just talked about <laughs> brain surgery. I mean, come on. True. <laughs> but yes, I, I feel your pain. Apologies. But we also learned that when you're offering words of comfort, you should use person-centered language. That means validating the person's feelings and expressing sympathy, care, and concern. That can actually ease the person's distress and maybe even encourage them to accept help. Because the last thing you want is to try to comfort someone and actually make them less open to accepting your help, right? Right. I can see the logic in telling someone to stop feeling a certain way or telling someone that the thing that they're worried about isn't that big of a deal. Because, you know, you you want it not to be a big deal. You want them to get some perspective. But 
really it's, you know, according to the research, the best thing to do is to make the person feel like what they're feeling is okay. It's almost like we all have feelings and we should all understand that they're valid. Hey. Today's stories were written by Grant Curran, Ashley Hamer, and Kelsey Donk, and edited by Ashley Hamer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity Daily. Script writing was by Cody Goff and Sonia Hodgen. Today's episode is produced and edited by Cody Goff. Look, I'm sorry this episode has to end. I know you enjoyed it a lot, and you wish our show was four hours long. I just hope you find some comfort knowing that you can join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. (laughs) And until then, stay curious. Stay curious.